All right. How many of you remember last week I made a promise that at the start of every one of these messages called Dear Corinth, where we're teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, I was going to tell, I'm going to tell you one of the top 10 weirdest stories at Cornerstone. And the reason I'm doing that is anytime that you're in the New Testament, you just have to like keep reminding yourself over and over again, these are strange people, these are strange cultures, weird things happen, and it's important when you study the New Testament, or if you're just a part of a church, that you remember that strange things happen in churches. So as a way to keep that idea front and center for us, I have another one that comes from the top 10 here at Cornerstone. This occurred a Sunday morning many years ago. And it ended with a physical altercation between me and another man right in front of the auditorium doors, right as the service was starting. Not an ideal moment or an ideal setting for something like that. What had happened is several months before, there was, there was a, a man here, um, a little older in age, and we had had to have several conversations with him just about the way he was approaching women at our small group gatherings and on Sunday morning. And, you know, I, I told him, I said, hey... It's awesome to find a wife, but the way you're doing it is not helping, all right? Um, He was making women feel very intimidated. They were unsafe. Um, We were getting lots of feedback from some of the life group leaders, and so so I met with them, and I just said, you know, you can't do that anymore, and here's some other ways that you might want to go about things, and here's how you're being experienced. And I can remember him uh, being a little frustrated and, and angry, but also a bit ashamed, and I said, hey, don't worry about it. You're forgiven, you're forgiven here, let's grow together, you know, we'll, we'll move on. I thought that would be the end of the conversation. Well, about a month later, things were happening again, so I met with him again. And every time we're having to meet, we kind of escalate the conversation a little more about how serious it is. Well, this happened three or four different times. Well, on that one particular Sunday morning, after three or four conversations, I saw him with a, a young lady in her 20s, and he kind of had her cornered. I could tell she felt uncomfortable. I knew exactly what was happening. So I walked up to the guy, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, hey, I need you to come with me. And so the, the, the poor young lady, she just she got out of there as fast as possible. She made quick eye contact with me. It's like, thank you, and she was out of there. And I, I pulled him aside, and I said, hey, you got to go home today. You can't stay here. You got to go home. Um, I'm going to call you later this week. We can talk about things. You got to go home. And he got very angry. And so he started to raise his voice and started poking me right in the chest. Now, if you've been a part of Cornerstone for a while, you, you know that I have an uncomfortable, or I mean an inappropriate uh, level of comfort with conflict. It's, it's inappropriate. <laughs> I'm eight on the Enneagram. I mean, this guy's speaking my love language right now. I'm like, here we go. <laughs> so when these things happen, I usually just have to calm down a little bit. I don't really have a temper. Some people go from like a zero or one to a 10. I live at a level four of anger and ability to handle conflict. And I go quickly to a seven. I'm very comfortable there. So I was at the seven. He's poking me in the chest, yelling at me. And uh, kind of without thinking, I grabbed his wrist and I, I grabbed his hand and I rolled his wrist back. It's a wrestling technique. I'd be glad to show you after the service if you'd like to see it. <clears throat> this guy's enormous too. He's huge. And I lean in and I whisper something in his ear. I can't tell you what I said today, but I politely asked him to leave, and if he didn't leave, things were going to go very bad for him the rest of the day. Now, there's only a few people in the world that know what I said to him. So me and this man, of course, God, 
And there were two others that were close enough to hear this whole interaction. People were watching, but only two heard. One of them was a little old sweet lady that I'd never seen before, and I've never seen her since. (laughs) I'm hoping it was someone's grandmother visiting from out of town, but I'm afraid that someone was visiting Cornerstone for the first time, and they're like, who is that? Well, that's our pastor right there. It's ain't my church. But the other person that heard it was Brian Yost, one of our elders, and he just looked at me and said, everything okay? And I smiled, and I said, yeah, things are fine. And he just walked off thinking, this is a normal day at Cornerstone. <laughs> so one thing happened, uh, led to another. We filed a restraining order. He wasn't allowed to come back. Um, the story gets, there's many layers to it, but a couple years later, I'm at Cafe Soleil here in South Boulder. Anyone know what I'm talking about? The coffee shop across the street. And I walk up to the counter to order my coffee, and I hear this loud, booming voice, intimidating voice from behind me say, there he is, the pastor that hates the vets, because he happened to be an Air Force veteran. I turn around, he's standing up in a packed coffee shop, pointing at me, saying, there he is, the pastor that hates the vets. I looked at the barista, I'm like, you've got to make my coffee faster than you've ever made a coffee, I'm getting out of here. But I'll tell you what, the Lord sent an angel that day. A homeless man was in the room. I don't know this homeless man. I've never seen him at Cornerstone. I don't think he knows me. He stood up between the two of us and started yelling back at this other guy, yelling at me, distracting him enough that I got my coffee and got out of the coffee shop. <laughs> Unfortunately, everyone in Cafe Soleil had their, their morning ruined by the chaos. But anyway, weird, weird things can happen at church. Now, it's good to keep in mind today, and it's fun to laugh a little bit because we're going to talk about a tough subject and a weird situation that's taking place in the letter of 2 Corinthians in chapter 2 specifically. Today, I want to talk to you about forgiveness. And I want to talk to you about forgiveness. I want to talk to you about what it means to restore someone. We're going to spend a little time talking about repentance and how that plays in with forgiveness and restoration. Um, but this is what I want to start with. I want to start with a question, okay? And I want to get a little mystical. And all I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit is working, okay? You're here today. Some of you are watching at home. Some of you are going to watch days later. You're listening to a message that we felt compelled to share with you today about the subject of forgiveness. There's a lot to teach about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but we chose a passage about forgiveness. And here's my question to you. Could it be that the Lord wants to say to you, today is time for forgiveness, in a new way or at a new level. And hopefully you'll see here in a moment that forgiveness occurs in many different ways. It's multifaceted. Um, It doesn't always look the same. It's a struggle. I like the phrase, the labor of forgiveness. You gotta work at it. It Keeps coming back and so you have to stay with it. But even with all of those things being true, could it be that God wants you, he wants to help you today forgive at a new level or forgive someone that you've never forgiven before? So as I mentioned, there are many layers to forgiveness. We're going to get to that. One thing that I do want to point out here um, early on is that there is no pace to forgiveness. So a lot of times we beat ourselves up because it doesn't come easy. Over and over again, especially in the New Testament, forgiveness is commanded. You've been forgiven. Forgive others. And the reason God says that is part of being a, living a committed life to Jesus is living out the gospel. And so if we've been forgiven, we have joyful gratitude in our heart, we can forgive other people. So it's about honoring him. But forgiveness is also about keeping us healthy. You know, bitterness and anger and unforgiveness is a powerful, it's a powerful energy that you could literally run your life on. 
but it will ruin you. And it'll make you someone that you don't want to be. And so there is a benefit to ourselves to forgive. And so forgiveness has this amazing potential to transform our lives, to release us from the hurts that are going to continually happen with, with different people in our lives. But there is no pace to it, meaning that you work at it. I was uh, with a friend this week, Gary Stanley. He's one of our resident Bible scholars here at Cornerstone. He's written many books. He's currently writing a book on forgiveness right now. So I thought, well, I'm, let's get together. Help me write my sermon, which usually means let's write it faster. Let's write it together. And uh, Gary had all kinds of amazing things to say. And he said, you know, talking about this idea that there's not a timeline to forgiveness, he said, when he was a boy, he, he grew up, uh, he was, would spend some time near a shore, and he often really, like, gross driftwood would float up on the shore. And what they would often do is they would grab it and they'd try to throw it as far out in the water as they could. Well, what usually happens with the driftwood when you throw it out in the water is that what happens? Comes back. Comes back. Sometimes you get lucky and it's taken away, but sometimes you just have to actually do the hard work of picking it up and throwing it away. But he said that's what forgiveness is like. It's like throwing it back and it keeps coming back and you throw it back again and you stay at it. Okay. So here in 2 Corinthians, uh, it's a moment of forgiveness. And as some of the, the Bible scholars, um, commentators, they call this passage, they name it a time to forgive. And I'm hoping for us today that it can be a reminder that it's a time for us to forgive. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, this is what it says. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him, so it's speaking of someone in their church, by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware, unaware of his scheme. So let's just point out really quick, I don't have, time to spend, or don't have the time to spend making this point, except to say this, unforgiveness is an open door for Satan. He uses it. It is an opportunity for him, okay? He's advantageous. He's not as powerful as God, but he's constantly looking for, for open doors into our heart to I mean, again, he hates us. He's trying to do certain things. And so Paul is giving them some warning. Now, in this passage, obviously something is going on with this Corinthian church that requires Paul's encouragement that the entire church would forgive this one particular person. Most scholars believe this is the conflict that came up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. In that passage, all right, I told you it was going to get a little weird today. This man is sleeping with his father's wife. And he won't stop, and the church is proud of it. Now, I don't want to explain that, but it's weird, right? And it's certainly outside of God's instructions regarding a sexual ethic that honors him. And so Paul instructs them on how to administer church, what we call church discipline. And I don't have a ton of time to spend on this, but I will say this. A lot of times people think church discipline, especially it's described in the New Testament, is harsh. But you need to know this. It's never instructed and meant to be done out of vengeance or to get even with someone. It's always done out of love. And here's the idea, that you cast someone out for a period of time to provoke in them their repentance. It's loving. 
Now remember back then, there's not a lot of churches in town that if you don't like one church or if you don't like the thing your pastor tells you or something you hear in your small group, there's not another church to go to. And the New Testament church was unique. I mean, the way they treated one another was, was beautiful. The way they worshiped was beautiful. God was performing miracles. These things weren't happening outside of the local church. And so to say you have to leave was actually a punishment. It wasn't so easy as to say, all right, I'm just gonna go to the church down the street and create chaos there. Because that's what usually happens. By the way, pastors call each other and say, heads up. <laughs> heads up. So it's meant to be done out of love. Now, if you, if you're, you don't believe me, you just need to talk to someone who's, been, who's related to someone who has an addiction. If you really want to help someone, let's say they're addicted to alcohol, if you really want to help them, you have to have boundaries and you have to have consequences that come with the boundaries. And one of the hardest things, and this is a way we can encourage one another, you're around people that are in families like this, one of the hardest things is to say, all right, you gotta leave. You can't stay in the home. We can't stay together when it's like this. You can't keep your job. But almost every time when that is done, it's done out of love. It's trying to help the person see the severity of their sin so that they might repent. And so every time, remember this, the church discipline is instructed in the scriptures or it happens in churches. It's meant to provoke repentance and healing and restoration. It's done out of love. Now I wanna go back into the story in a moment, but I wanna spend some time talking about the multi-layered idea of forgiveness because by the time it gets here, uh, Paul's talking about it here in 2 Corinthians, he has this multi-faceted, multi-layered definition of what forgiveness is that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And I will say this, the theme of forgiveness is in the Old Testament, but it's primarily the forgiveness that God offers us, which is true. God offers us forgiveness. There's a number of passages that describe it. God's forgiveness is meant to restore us into relationship with him. You get to the New Testament, that idea of God forgiving is almost always connected to our forgiveness of other people. They are not meant to be separated. And so this is where it becomes a challenge for us because our peace and relationships are constantly interrupted by people getting hurt. Which means forgiveness is something that we work at and we work at and we work at over and over again in our life. So I wanna just point out these, um, these, these different ways to, to, uh, forgiveness is described in the scriptures. And we can put up that first Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is nasa, which literally means to pardon or to carry the burden for someone else. It means to lift the burden off of them. So Jacob instructs his son Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Remember, Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers. It was terrible. They sold him into slavery. He's lived for about 15, 20 years just under terrible suffering because of the things that his brothers have done. Well, the course of events has brought it so that his brothers end up in his court. He now works in Egypt. He's a powerful man. He has, um, his job is to hand out all the food during a severe famine, and his brothers show up. Those brothers who sold him into slavery show up. They don't recognize him. They're trying to get food. And they come with the instruction of their father, that is, Joseph's got to forgive you because they know what happened. So this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. To lift the burden. To not hold them uh, responsible any longer. 
Psalm 32, we see that the Lord forgives this way, that he pardons us, that he lifts the burden. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, lifted off of them, whose sins are covered. I mean, what a gift that God literally lifts our sins off of us. What's tough for us as people is a lot of times we judge ourselves, we beat ourselves up, we stay under the burden of the mistakes that we've made, but you need to know it doesn't come from God. He lifts the burden. So first definition of forgiveness the second one um, is used a slightly different way, and it's the Hebrew word salak, which describes the present action of forgiving or a forgiving spirit. So it's a way to just describe that there's forgiveness in the person. Hopefully, every marriage represented in this room has salak as a way to describe the forgiveness that takes place because not only have you had to forgive your spouse, but forgiveness will be needed in the future. Isn't that true? I mean, don't say amen because you might get in trouble if your spouse is sitting next to you. But amen and amen. Amen, right? Forgiveness is needed. An ongoing forgiving spirit. And so you can, you know, a great example of this occurs in, in 1 Kings. You can see it behind me. Over and over again, um, they're asking that God would forgive and keep forgiving and forgive in the future. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, speaking of what's going to take place in the future. God has this forgiving spirit. You get down to verse 36. Then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. You get down to verse 39. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. I mean, this is one of the ways that God forgives. We can count on God being forgiving, continue to forgive, and forgiving in the future. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. But it's needed in relationships too. What happens if you're, uh, you're a parent and your forgiveness was not conditional, but it was like it would run out with your children? Think of the stress that would create on your children. Think of the environment that that would create. Would it promote growth and maturity? It really wouldn't. It'd make them very anxious. Life would be about moralism. It wouldn't be this relational love of trying to grow and mature. And so we all need this forgiving spirit, ongoing forgiving spirit that God has. The third word is the Hebrew word kafar. And this is the word that we get a, a, another phrase that you may be familiar with. Many of you have heard of the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur that just took place a couple weeks ago. It literally means the day of atonement. And so kafar means atonement. It means to, uh, to have something covered over to be atoned for. So a simple uh, illustration of this is, let's say you're out to, to lunch with a friend and they conveniently forgot their wallet. This is what your adult kids often do, right? They conveniently forgot their wallet and you say to them, hey, I've got you covered. I will atone for the bill. I will cover your debt. So in Jewish life, part of the forgiveness that God would offer is, offer is every day there would be an atonement sacrifice made in the fall on this feast. Payment had to be made to cover over. And so that's why animals had to be killed and slaughtered. The atonement was life. Leviticus 23, verse 26, and the Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the day to cover over. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present... A food offering to the Lord, do not do any work on that day. I mean, it's, in other words, it's a very, very sacred day in Jewish life because God is offering forgiveness, but forgiveness here is described as atonement. That he covers over. 
Forget, atonement always comes with a cost. Tim Keller says, forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. And that forgiveness often, often can be, or that cost can often be to not retaliate or absorb the cost. Last December, Elise and I went out on a date, and uh, before we were headed out, we gave instructions to our boys. We said, hey, we're, I didn't say this because Elise was doing all the work. She, she said, hey, I've put tater tots in the oven for you. And when the timer goes off, you need to take those tater tots out. So we have three of our four boys there. One of them is a senior in high school. The other one is a freshman in high school, and our eight-year-old is there. Well, the senior in high school, while the food is cooking, goes downstairs, puts his headphones on, and starts playing video games. The freshman in high school, who was really the most uh, accountable to take care of this, (laughs) he he decided he'd take a nap on the couch. And the eight-year-old sat in the kitchen and watched stupid YouTube videos. Well, the timer went off, and the tater tots were not taken out of the oven. And they stayed in, I don't know how long, an hour, until they caught on fire and smoke began to billow out of the oven, burning the oven and filling our entire house with ash and smoke. So we got home and, you know, for us, for, you know, we had to, I I don't think I'm ever going to stop giving the boys a hard time about that. So (laughs) the forgiveness that I'm going to talk about in a moment, that that will never happen. I'm never going to forget it. (laughs) But... We atoned for their mistake. Thank goodness we had insurance that helped atone for it. We paid a deductible. We did some cleaning. We atoned. We covered up the mistake and didn't hold them responsible for it. Okay, this is the part of forgiveness people often say is unfair. But when you're a parent, don't you do this for your kids all the time? Because you love them. That's how God forgives. He covers over. Sorry, Wyatt. Had to tell that story. I'm glad you're here this morning to hear it. <clears throat> Here's another way to describe atonement. I just spent some time on this because it's so central to the idea of forgiveness. Um, it, it's like one of those protective braces that, that holds a joint together. So um, I have a terrible right knee. I've torn my ACL four times. I haven't had that important ligament for the last 15 years. And uh, so that makes my knee just, it's a wreck. And one of these days, I'm going to have to get a knee replacement. But when I really want to do something active, I've got this beautiful, very expensive titanium brace that I strap onto my knee, and it allows me to go out there and run around and play flag football or to wrestle with the kids or do different things. Now, here's what my brace does. My brace literally covers over the offense of the weakness and the wound in my knee. It holds it together. That's part of the idea of forgiveness as atonement. It surrounds, it takes the blow, it takes the force, it holds it together, okay? So if you ever wanna know what the gospel does for you, it surrounds you, it protects the wound, it absorbs the force, it allows you to move on, okay? And so atonement is this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of forgiveness that we find in the scriptures. So that's kafar. Then you get to the New Testament, and you have writers like Paul who are trying to find Greek words to describe certain aspects of forgiveness, and it keeps building upon itself. So athename is another word that we see. We see it in different places. Matthew chapter 6, you can see behind me. For if you forgive others, uh, 
For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In Luke chapter 6, verse 37, you can see behind me, it's a very similar passage of the words of Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain the condition part here in a moment. But Athena may literally means to separate the person from their sin, to not talk about it anymore. So when I said, I'm always going to talk about it with my sons, I'm rejecting this kind for them when it comes to the oven. But this is what God does for us. You no longer talk about it. You no longer hold it against them. You no longer think about it when you think of them. So let's say someone owes you $100, and every time you're around them, it's like you're like, it's just weird. Like this thing exists between us. They don't say anything about it. It's weird. For you to finally get to the place where you're like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to move on. I'm going to forget about it. You are separate them, separating them from their sin. You no longer see it that way. This is a way that God relates to us. So that's the word that's used here. Now, the question is, is forgiveness conditional? And we know from the rest of the, the, the narrative of the scriptures that God's forgiveness is not conditional on us. Thank God. I mean, it's part of the beauty of his forgiveness. But here's what I think he's saying. If you've been forgiven by God, you now have a responsibility. Knowing that he no longer sees you through your sin. I love the phrase that Satan calls you by your sin, but Jesus calls you by your name. Okay, he sees your sin but calls you by your name. He no longer looks at us that way. He forgives us that freely. He, you know, it's, it's the sense cast into the ocean. Now here's what he's saying. If you've experienced that kind of grace, you are now responsible to work at forgiveness with other people. Here's the other thing it means. Because forgiveness is a command, when we don't forgive, you know what that is? That's sin. So this is the way forgiveness play, helps itself it's, or hurts itself is if you choose not to forgive someone, you are now sinning against God and there is now something between you and him. Bitter people, unforgiving people have a hard time experiencing intimacy with God because they have this, now this offense between the two of them. So we don't earn God's forgiveness, but they go together. We're responsible to share what has been given to us. Now here's the last word for forgiveness in the scriptures. Anyone know how to pronounce that? I heard several people say it the wrong way this week. So we'll say it the wrong way right now. Terizimo, of course, is how you say that. It's the Greek word for forgiveness that means gracious in relationship or the forgiveness that reconciles. So when we talk about peacemaking and reconciliation with that conference, we're talking about this. So forgiveness becomes a part of the reconciliation process. So terizomo means to forgive. It means to restore. So Ephesians chapter 4. By the way, this shows up over and over again in the New Testament. It is the ultimate goal of all forgiveness. This is what God is always doing with us, okay? So what it says about us with other people. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every other form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ God forgave you. In other words, forgive them in a way that restores them back. This is the very word that shows up in our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. You can see it behind me. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. The time has come to forgive this way. Okay, so they're not just talking about forgetting about his offense or covering over or atoning for it. He, Paul is actually saying it is time to go to this deeper place of forgiveness and restore him back. 
And again, this is what God's forgiveness is always working out with us. He covers over the sin. He pays for the sin. He's got a forgiving spirit. Why? To keep us and bring us back to him. It's about loving union with God. That's what God is always doing. Now, I will say this. This type of forgiveness is not always possible. And here's why. To restore someone back means that they have had to go through a process themselves of change and repentance. Churches in the past have said very terrible things like this to, to, I'll just use this example, to women who are being abused. You need to forgive the man, which means forgive him and move on. Restore him back. That is not safe. We're going to get to it in a moment, but that man needs to be held accountable so that he might repent. Now, you might, you know, uh, you might be able to work at some of the other mechanisms of forgiveness, but this type of forgiveness requires both parties or all the parties involved acting in appropriate ways. Now, I will say this. When we, when we get into conflict that's very complicated, and most, you know, most conflict is, which means forgiveness is complicated, there's a bit of repentance and forgiving happening by both parties or all the parties, right? Like if you get in a, a fight with, let's say, you know, a friend um, and there's some conflict, you, usually we both have things to apologize about, which means we both have things to forgive one another for. And we both have things to say, you know, I'll work on trying to change that in life. So um, I, I don't, it's not always presented as just the one doing the forgiving and one repenting. It's often mixed up together and we have to sort out what our work is together. But it is not true that to forgive means that you don't hold people accountable or you don't ask and take people through the process of repentance. That's exactly what's happening in our story. This particular man, we don't know how long it's been, but we know that Paul wrote that first letter. Many people believe that he wrote other letters along the way instructing on how they're meant to restore this man. It's pretty hard to restore someone once they leave, but it's possible. And for them to be in this place where Paul is saying it's now time to forgive, you know what it means? It means the man had a change of heart. It's not just religious moralism where he's trying to behave so that people will get off his back. He's literally had a change of heart. And here's one of the ways that you can identify repentance from just you know, trying to follow the rules of religious moralism. It's, it's the change of heart, but it comes with these other, um, these, these other actions. And so I wanna, I wanna just mention a few of them. This is a way to notice repentance in someone, including yourself. The person will confess their sin. They'll stop hiding it, which means they stop justifying it. True confession means you stop blaming people. It means you stop being a victim. If you've really done something to harm other people, you just say, you know what? This is what I did. Honest confession before God and other people. There's something healing about having it said, to hearing it yourself, letting other people hear it. So when they confess, they really confess. The excuses stop, the blaming stops, the being the victim, it stops. Often repentance shows up as making amends if that's possible. Trying to right the wrong or, you know, repay the person if that's what's needed or to write them a letter or whatever it can be. But there's always this picture of a heart change. There's a pure motive, which really is, I want to live a different way. A pure motive of I know how I've harmed you. I know how I've harmed God. And so when repentance happens, it is now safe to restore someone and to forgive the way that Paul is instructing people here. Um, so Tim Keller's got a new book coming out. It comes out in two weeks. It's called Forgiven. 
And um, I quote him all the time because I, he's one of my go-to. He's just, he's a brilliant pastor. And uh, he was talking about something new that Christians are having to deal with when it comes to forgiveness, something new that's being created, a pressure that's being created because of our culture. So there is this beautiful movement and this passion in our culture today for justice. And we all define justice this way. It's equity for all people. So you could just find justice as loving your neighbor, that it's, it's about um, making sure that everyone is cared for, that, that no one's a victim of injustice, and, and, and we're working towards those things, okay? It's a, it's a beautiful thing that's happening in our culture. But what often happens with Christians is that we think that we have to either be a forgiving culture or a justice culture. And it's not just with Christians. You have people on both sides of that camp. You have the forgiving people that literally say, you forgive and you forget, and you don't hold people accountable. And then there are others on the justice side that says, no, no, you just hold people accountable and you never forgive. And unfortunately, many of the justice movements that are popular in our culture today, they do not have forgiveness as part of the process. And that is harmful to the person. It'll be hard to sustain that kind of movement. Likewise, if you're in a church that, that just says, hey, we just forgive, and that's an excuse to look, have a blind eye and look away from the injustice taking place in the world, that's an equal mistake. Forgiveness and repentance or forgiveness and accountability go together. They are both ways of loving people. And if we're after this kind of forgiveness that restores other people, we, we have to do this. So, you know... Um, one of the hardest things that's ever happened here at Cornerstone is many years ago, we were notified about uh, physical abuse that took place um, at one of our events. And the person involved was someone that was close to many of us. And there was some conversation and some pressure from different people that were a part of our community that we just needed to forgive him and allow him to stay. That was not going to happen. We asked him to leave. We called the police. We showed up at court. We were working towards um, full prosecution towards this person that had committed the offense. All in the same time, we're working at forgiving. I can tell you this person wanted to be restored very, very quickly, but it wasn't going to happen because we were not going to reinstate him, re, re, you know, restore him so quickly because there was no forgive or there was no repentance. It was really, really clear. I'm saying this because a lot of times people beat themselves up. They're like, you know, I'm just supposed to just let this person keep doing this. Now, boundaries are loving. Accountability can be loving. Now, it also can be vengeful and not loving. But when our goal is to love people, we see that forgiveness and accountability, they go together. So in this case, this, this man has demonstrated that there's a, a change of his direction. So Paul says, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed with excess sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, let him back in. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But isn't forgiveness messy, complicated? You can get tired of it because it's a labor. It's incredibly challenging. I know some of you have had to forgive some terrible offenses in your life. A lot of times it has to do, the reason it's hard is the people, it's people that are closest to you or were the closest to you. It can be so hard to forgive. 
There are hard things in life that are just hard, and then there are hard things in life that are good and that lead to joy and peace and flourishing. Forgiveness is one of those things. And so I think that's why over and over again, especially in the New Testament, you see this conversation taking place. Are we forgiving? Is it time to forgive? How do we forgive more? Is it time to restore? Is it just time to stop talking about that person in that way? Is it time to stop thinking of them that way? If you really have forgiven, you know, you take it upon yourself, you make the payment. Let's stop trying to get them to pay for it. Forgiveness can look a lot of different ways. And as I close, I want to just close with one simple point, and it's this, that forgiveness is more often caught than it is taught. So I've just spent 35 minutes teaching on forgiveness, but I'll tell you that the best way to grow in forgiveness is to experience it. And so I think that, you know, the incredible energy that comes from being forgiven by God, I mean, it's, it can transform your life. To know how forgiven you are, the, the cost that he went to, that he opened up heaven and he gave us his one and only son to make that atoning payment. I mean, that, that can move you to be a person that wants to be a little more gracious and more forgiving. But when you watch other people in your life forgive, it also can beget more forgiveness. Forgiveness begets more forgiveness. Or when you've been forgiven by someone in your life, it can create more forgiveness. I want to end with one really, really important story in the Bible that shows up over and over again. So in Genesis chapter 33, we come to the conclusion of a great big family feud between two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob had stolen something precious from his brother. I don't have time to describe the whole thing. You can read about it um, in the chapters leading up to chapter 33. They'd been separated for years. Esau was so angry with his younger brother that he wanted to kill him. So Jacob's been running around. He's kind of been this weasel in his life. He steals stuff. He's sneaky. And the time comes where the two of them are going to meet. They have families now. They, they have a lot of possessions. The time comes when they're ready to meet. And, and Jacob was literally ready to just make full payment to his older brother. He, he believed that his brother might kill him, but he was just willing to face the consequences. And it's this beautiful story that we're told that Esau comes up to him. And you can see it behind me, chapter 33, verses three and four. He himself went ahead and bowed down. That's Jacob to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him, his neck, and he kissed him and they wept. It's a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Okay, a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 50, and you have kind of a parallel story. We mentioned it earlier. I don't think we have this reference up behind me. But we have, um, we have Joseph forgiving his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And he forgives. And the word's not used, but he forgives them. Separates the offense. He atones for the... He restores them in relationship. It, I mean, it's one of the most amazing pictures, stories in the entire Bible with the way Joseph says to his brothers, come close. It's amazing. Now, in chapter 33, if you go back up and you can put that verse back behind me in verse seven. So Joseph is the son of Jacob. So Jacob's forgiven by Esau. The only son that's referenced that was with Jacob the day that Esau forgave him is Joseph here in, in verse seven. Look who's there. Joseph and Rachel, which means that Joseph was there watching his uncle forgive his father. It was amazing.
it would be naive to think that that didn't influence what takes place later on in chapter 50 when he forgives his brothers. Look what my uncle did for our family by forgiving. Look how God can use forgiveness to bless people, to bless me, to bless us. And for Joseph to say, I deny my brothers that, I'd be missing out on what God is doing. Forgiveness is caught. By the way, this story about Jacob and Esau is so powerful that Jesus told a version of the story in Luke chapter 15. We know it as the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story? The, the, the son asked for the inheritance of his father, the younger brother, and he runs off and he blows it. it, says in wild living. He has nothing. He comes back to his father. He's hoping to just be treated as a hired servant. The father runs out, hugs him, accepts him, forgives him all in a moment, and, and just lavishes all this blessing upon him. But All along the way, there's this older brother that's still at home and he's bitter and he's angry with his younger brother for what he's done to their family and his father and he won't forgive. That story is the Jacob and Esau story and and Jesus told it because he said, he was talking to religious people, he said, you know what? You need to be more like Esau than you are the older brother in the parable. So I want you to think for a moment. Maybe it's God's great forgiveness for you she wants you to be grateful. I want you to remember what that felt like. Or if you've ever seen forgiveness done in an amazing way that, that changed the, the whole scenario for a family or a person, or if you've been forgiven in such a way that you've literally been set free and it changed your life, I want you to remember it right now. Because I think God wants us to forgive. And that can be this powerful thing that moves us to forgive. Forgiveness begets forgiveness the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of others, our forgiveness, it is meant to be shared. By the way, a church community is meant to be a place where we increase joy together, we learn from one another, where my forgiveness leads to your forgiveness, your forgiveness leads to, to my forgiveness, that it's just this thing that we're, we're helping one another to do the hard thing, but to do the hard thing that's good. All right. Let's bring down the lights. I want to go to the quiet place of prayer. And I want to just give you a chance to hear from the Lord, and then I'm going to close by reading a bit from Psalm 103. So it's helpful at times like this just to say to the Holy Spirit that you're listening. And then I want to encourage you today to take the risk and ask God to show you if there's any hate in your heart, unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe it's just a subtle resentment that's still there. Let him share that with you and hear his words. It's a time to forgive. And let him show you what forgiveness in this moment looks like. Because it doesn't always look the same. Let him show you what the work of forgiveness will look like in the days to come.
Father, I thank you for the quiet work that's being done right now. It's a life-changing work. Forgiveness leads to life. Father, as we wrestle, we struggle, we labor to forgive, may we remember your forgiveness. May it always be in our heart, making us smile, keeping us humble, but affirming us, reminding us that it's possible. Now hear the words of David describing the forgiveness of God. This is Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the mountains are from the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions, our sin, from us. Father, remind us of that. Lead us in the work of forgiving. And Father, if it's possible that relationships might be restored, we ask you to help us do that, that hard work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.